for joining us at Off The Clock, brought to you by the team at Tompkins Wake. I'm your host, Catherine Bryant, Special Counsel in Charge of Knowledge Management. Join us as we offer guidance on and insight into topical issues in business and law. As part of our practical business series, we're talking about how to strengthen business resilience when times are tough. Today, we're talking about risks and obligations for company directors in tough economic times. I'm joined by Wayne Hoffer, commercial litigation partner and insolvency expert at Tompkins Wake, and Andrew Grenfell, partner at McGrath Nickel, with over 20 years of turnaround, restructuring, advisory and insolvency experience. Thanks for joining me. Good morning. Morning. So today we're talking about the role that company directors play when times get tough, and we're looking at the duties they have and the risks that can arise from those duties and how directors can manage those risks. Most people know that directors have duties, such as acting in good faith or acting in the company's best interests. And these duties are the same regardless of the size of the company, but what's required might differ from company to company. The one we're going to be talking about in particular today is about when the company is incurring obligations. Wayne, do you just want to talk us through what's the rule when a company incurs obligations? What do directors need to know about? In simple terms, they've just got to make sure that they don't incur an obligation that they, the company can't achieve in the future. So it, it's about risk and business taking. The role of a director is not to not take risks. It's just to make sure that the risks they take are reasonable in the circumstances. And, you know, when we're talking about incurring obligations, the company has to make sure it's looking at all obligations, doesn't it? So it's not just when the company takes active steps, you know, such as, I don't know, agreeing to buy something. Does it apply to debts that arise by themselves, like tax debts? Yes, it does. I mean, I think you have to look at um, knowledge as well. You're not necessarily entering into a formal agreement, but you may have knowledge that uh, if the transactions went ahead, you'd have things like GST to pay. So you don't have a contract with the IRD, but it is part and parcel of that obligation you're entering into. So mm-hmm. so knowing that you're, you've got obligations that arise as a result of your actions, and you have to be aware of whether or not you can meet those, not just the obligations that you actively incur. So when does this duty kick in? Do directors need to scrutinise every transaction all the time? The duty's always there. I think, you know, normal business, BAU type businesses, directors have to understand and be aware of how the company's trading. I think it more when you get into what we call the twilight zone and it's identified that the company may be having cash flow or other issues then I think directors need to take a closer look and be more involved, I suppose, in the obligations that have been taken on board and how they're going to satisfy themselves that those obligations can be met going forward. So, you know, normal BAU directors have obligations to understand the company, but when we get into that twilight zone, I think that the lens they look through has to be a little bit clearer. Yeah, I completely agree with that. We Think about companies as, on one hand, a going concern company that's got no issues, and on another hand, a completely insolvent company. And the twilight zone, what Andrew's talking about, is the one where you get to close to insolvency. So you're not on the other end of the spectrum, you're close to the insolvency end of the spectrum. And the courts refer to that zone as going through troubled financial waters. And that's the sort of area that the obligations duty really crystallizes, I think, for directors. And I think one thing that's been 
brought out is that having ignorance or claiming that I didn't know, it's got to be taken in a reasonable lens. And I think the duties of directors over the last few years, while they've always been there, from what we see, the courts have actually just indicated where that bar is. And so just claiming that I didn't know, you should have known, is more the point. So it's that, I think it's that reasonable grounds would a reasonable director have expected to know that? So directors just can't say, well, I didn't turn up to that board meeting or I didn't read that piece of paper. It doesn't work these days. So when you've got a company that's entering, you know, troubled waters or the twilight zone, does the obligation of directors to kind of monitor what's going on become more important? For sure, because the company's entering those waters where the potential that it can't meet its obligations is heightened then the directors, you know, need to be more aware of that. And, you know, they need to be able to pick up the red flags before then to know that they've got to take more notice and and maybe dive a bit deeper into obligations the company or the board might have parameters that certain level of capex have to be approved by the board. I think when you get into the troubled waters, it gets a lot more granular than that. Yeah, and I guess there's a two-step process there, isn't there? There's the first one of actually knowing that you come into the financial troubled financial waters, but which previously there's certainly been a, a characterization of what Andrew was saying about ignorance that, oh, I didn't really know. Therefore, the next step, which is making sure that you don't incur those obligations, doesn't necessarily bite as much because you've got the ignorance beforehand. At the very beginning, um, Andrew talked about the fact that the director's duties are always there and that the obligation's always there. And that's brought up particularly in this instance because I think there's as I said two stages first of all you have to know that you're entering those troubled financial waters and if you're sort of not going to board meetings you're not reading your board papers then you're not going to know that and even more to the point is you might be reading your board papers but you might not be scrutinizing them you might not particularly know how close to the financial waters you are and then the second one is obviously making sure that when you're in the financial waters that your director's duties or your obligations are heightened to make sure that you don't convene the director's duties. Yeah, and, and, you know, what we see is that directors in those situations should be asking for, depending on how dire it is, management providing regular cash flows showing that obligations can be met. The further you get in, the the more short-term that becomes, but directors have to take responsibility for ensuring that they're fully informed. Yeah, and I guess it's probably important just to put on the record what we're talking about when we're uh, sort of get into the trouble financial waters is that the Companies Act has a solvency test in Section 4, which is there's two limbs to it. The first one is what's called the balance sheet limb, is that the assets are greater than your liabilities. And the second one is the cash flow insolvency test that a business is able to meet their ordinary business expenses as they fall due. I don't think that's the exact words, but they're able to meet their liabilities in the ordinary course of business as they fall due. And if a company's not able to meet either one of those, or is getting close to not being able to meet either one of those. That's the period that we're talking about entering into the twilight zone or the, the troubled financial waters. And Andrew's talked about the the cash flow from management, and there's certainly instances in which that has to be on a hourly basis or a half-daily basis or a weekly basis, depending on how close you get, because as soon as you don't meet either one of those limbs, the company is technically insolvent. So... If we do get to that point where the uh, company's technically insolvent, does the company have to stop trading at that point? Technically, no. A black letter lawyer would say yes. 
and a commercial look at it might say, well, you've identified it. Is there a path or avenue out of this that is can be reasonably relied upon? For example, you might be going through troubles where you have a cross-guarantee from an offshore parent that your business is fine, but because of that guarantee's been called across the group, technically you're insolvent because you, you don't have the balance sheet to meet it. The business itself might be perfectly viable. So in those situations, I think you need to sit down with your advisors and, and, and look whether there is a way out of those situations. And, you know, we've come across situations where a subsidiary may be perfectly well traded, but a group guarantee's been called. That subsidiary has been kept out of any formal appointment with a standstill agreement with the bank to allow it to trade and then ultimately, I suppose, be sold off as a viable going concern. So there are restructuring techniques which can turn a, a business that is currently insolvent, solvent again. And I think those conversations have to be gone through with advisors and lawyers to determine whether there is an underlying viable business. And I think the law gives a, a period of time for that to happen, not extensive. And there are mechanisms that uh, will protect directors during that and ways to restructure a business outside of a formal and inside of a formal. For me, the key difference would be whether you're cash flow insolvent or whether you're balance sheet insolvent because of a, a particular event like what Andrew's talking about, the calling of a cross-guarantee from the group, as opposed to not actually getting enough money in on a Monday to pay your debts on a Friday. I think the circumstances in those two situations are quite different. And obviously with the technical expertise of Andrew, the results could be quite different because if you're not able to pay your debts on a Friday, the likelihood that companies are going concern is probably, it's unlikely that a company is going to be a viable going concern company if it's not bringing enough money to pay its debts. That, that's right, and I think there's different circumstances. You know, there's external factors that might have caused it. I mean, perfect example there is COVID, where um, governments told the business it can't operate on a Monday. Um, from a cash flow point of view, that's um, pretty disastrous to some of them. To one where it is a, a purely a management issue, and the business just isn't a viable business, no matter what you do to it. But there are mechanisms whereby you're effectively at that stage you're trading at the behest of your creditors. And so there are mechanisms that you can use, which are we call formal, the, the statutory ones, or informal. And I suppose in, in this situation, you might look at a compromise where, you know, you go to creditors and as long as they are part of the decision-making process and agree to what you're suggesting, then you can work your way through. The risk in that is that you bring some creditors into the tent and not others. We've had a situation actually through COVID where we got a compromise with the major creditors, which meant that their payments were deferred on agreement with them, written agreement. But we had to make sure that those minor creditors that weren't involved in that, we were comfortable they were going to be paid in full. Mm. And the, the main creditors had full information, knew that the other creditors were going to be paid, but they saw that the company probably had the ability to trade through and therefore came to agreement with the company that you know, they would allow them to do that for a period of time, subject to the provision of certain information. So while it might be insolvent at that point of time, you can work with your creditors to you know, 
try and fix a business if there is a viable business underneath, and that that's the key. If there isn't, then I think you know the question: should it go straight into some form of insolvency? Yes. So Wayne, and um, we had a couple of years ago Supreme Court talking about you know if there isn't a way to trade out. What if continued trading is going to benefit some creditors but not others? And what were the Supreme Court's thoughts on that? Uh, it came down pretty harshly. <laughs> um, the case you're referring to is obviously Debbie Holmes. And in that instance, for those of you who don't know, it was um, a property development business that had, there's sort of two schools of thought on this, that the developer had done right by his creditors by making sure that he could um, sell the properties to pay off all his creditors, but he left a big one there, which is the IRD. And there's certainly one school of thought that he did the right thing by making sure that the trade creditors were paid. And it doesn't really matter if he doesn't pay the IRD because the IRD gets plenty of money from elsewhere. Um, I'm not but, sure the IRD shared that, that point of view, did no, it? No, no, <laughs> and that, that's the exact reason why it went to the Supreme Court. And obviously the other school of thought is that the idea is still a creditor and in this instance a preferential creditor and the trade creditors had received uh, preference over and above the IRD and the director was sued for breach of director's duties. The Supreme Court didn't view what the director had done favourably. The Supreme Court basically looked at what the director had done and said at the time you made the decision to carry on trading, you definitely knew the IRD wasn't going to be paid and you continued on anyways and that's the breach of 135. Mm. So if you definitely know there's going to be a shortfall, you have to take some form of insolvency or restructuring, whether that's a formal well, I think process the, or an informal agreement with creditors that you I can't just the, trade uh, on and hope. Yeah, I think the framework that we need to think about with directors' duties is we're not necessarily talking about the directors that Andrew's spoken about where they get to the troubled financial waters and they think there's something that they're going towards insolvency and they get their advisors on board and they're speaking to insolvency practitioners, they're speaking to their bank, they're speaking to legal advisors. I don't necessarily think that the directors' duties obligations in the Companies Act are focused on those types of directors. I think they're focused more on directors who realize they get into the troubled financial waters and sort of barrel on anyway. And the debut Holmes case is squarely focused on that type of director. Unfortunately for him, he decided to barrel on anyway. And that's when the, the incurring of the obligations happened. If you've got a director that's getting into the troubled financial waters and is speaking to the advisors, I think that that's your responsible director. And taking a, a huge step back, the reason why we've got the Companies Act and the director's duties within the Companies Act is because the huge imbalance of the position of power that a director has in a company vis-a-vis the person whose money they're using to run the company, which is going to be their creditors and their shareholders. And the Companies Act is designed to allow business risk-taking for a whole bunch of reasons, including the economic benefit of our society that benefit for the director and the ability to take risk under the Companies Act has to be sort of squared off with the risk of abuse by the directors. And Andrew touched on this briefly earlier, where trading on the behest of your creditors and basically the Companies Act is squarely trying to avoid the directors using the creditors' money to carry on trading for the upside of the business, which is probably going to be them or their shareholders, but the creditor gets no upside if it goes wrong and it gets all the downside. And so there's a really 
fine balance that the Companies Act is trying to meet here. And going back to what I said about which the directors were trying to talk about, it's not the directors that are reasonably looking at troubled financial waters and speaking to the advisors and taking careful steps. It's the ones that are either ignorant as to the troubled financial waters or the ones that are aware of it and bear on regardless. Yeah, I think, I mean, we used to have a thing called, well, a running account rule. So, you know, when liquidators used to square the books up, if at the time of insolvency the creditors were X and then when uh, all the money's taken into account and it's still X and there's no, I suppose, there's no movement in that account, there can be through trading, but, you know, no creditor is worse off in aggregate. I think the courts have come out and sort of said, well, that's not right. They've said that although the dollar value of absolute creditors, the mix of the creditors in there are different. And so you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, I think, is the quote the court used Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, particularly with creditors that are in the know who stop servicing the company and unknown creditors who, who are unaware of the company's problems start trading with them. They're the ones who might get caught out. So the court's also clarifying that for us, which is helpful. So, Andrew, as an insolvency practitioner, what factors would you look at in deciding whether to bring proceedings against a director? Well, I think, I mean, Wayne's covered a couple of them. I mean, you've got to look at the actions intent of the directors. Have they acted in good faith? Did they knowingly continue to trade the company knowing that it was um, insolvent? Do they keep good books and records to be able to know that? Have the directors considered their contingent liabilities while trading the company? Was the position they've got into caused by external factors out of their control, COVID-19, for example, or, you know, an earthquake or something like that, which they aren't necessarily, has come from their decision-making, you know, with the proper books and records kept. So there's a whole mix of things. It's not a determining whether to take action against the director is taken very seriously by liquidators. And we will look at all factors to determine whether there is a good case for it and we'll get our lawyers involved in that because at the end of the day it is the law that we are dealing with and to make sure that end of the day our job is to return as much money to the creditors as possible. So we'll look at a cost-benefit analysis too and if, if the director has no insurance or the director has no assets, then from a liquidator's point of view, um, not necessarily from a regulator's but from a liquidator's point of view, it's no good throwing good money after bad and reducing the the pool of available assets to the creditors by chasing something where you're not going to get any money just for the fact that you think the director's gone wrong. Mm, I completely back that up. The focus of a, a liquidator and the legal advisors in such a situation is not necessarily going to be on the director just because it resulted in a bad outcome. The courts are pretty clear that it's not about bad business judgment per se. It's because the courts recognise that the director's got a duty there to, well, a duty's probably a wrong sense of word, the power to take business risks. And it's not necessarily about the fact that when business risk turns out badly, it's more when it's the director's ignored the fact that they get into the troubled financial waters. There's a whole bunch of red flags that they've just not even taken care of and they've gone on in any event. It's that sort of circumstance in which Andrew will be more interested yeah, so so when you look at the companies, Zach, you know, you've got 135 and 136. So we've been talking about 136 in terms of entering into transactions, but 135 is reckless trading. Mm. 
if a director has gone in and has recklessly traded, you know, they need to be taken to account because, again, you're pushing your risk onto creditors. You've chewed through all your own equity and now you're putting other people's equity and businesses at risk by recklessly trading. I think that's that's where a liquidator going in would be very interested to look at the director's actions. Mm. And I think just from my perspective and my experience, I've never seen a file come across my desk in which the, it was a bad judgment of a director. The matters and the director's duties, actions that I've been involved in have been quite bad where you can look at the, the board reports and you can see that the directors have been fully cognizant of what's been happening in the last three or four years and they've just continued to um, incur obligations on behalf of the company or trade recklessly. Perhaps one of the most egregious ones I ever saw was the Bridgecorp Finance Company. If you took a step back and looked at what the directors actually knew, there wasn't any way that you could paint it in which they didn't know how bad the, the situation of Bridgecorp was in. And I think, look, as the courts point out, there are both formal being statutory and informal methods and to deal with businesses that are struggling. You have the compromises I've already mentioned, which can be informal or formal, or you can have a voluntary administration, which still allows the company to trade but provides it protection from its creditors so that a, a potential document can be put in front of creditors called a docker where it's a creditor's decision whether the company should continue on in its form or it would be better for it to be liquidated. So in terms of directors, they need to know that the courts will look at that and say, well, actually, you did have other options. Mm. Uh, you had statutory protections, all these other mechanisms that you could have used to protect both you and creditors and let creditors in on the decisions around what is their equity and capital at the end of the day. You know, directors just have to skill themselves up and, and understand what those options are and that, you know, the earlier you try and address these, the issues that they're facing, uh, the more options that they will have. We always look at it if, if we're getting rung up and someone's saying, I can't pay my wages tomorrow. Uh, in terms of restructuring that, it's a lot harder to restructure a company that has no cash, mm. the one that has some cash and, and some runway to try and work with creditors to remedy the situation. Absolutely. I mean, I think the days of a director saying, well, I just didn't know the company was in such a bad situation, I was sort of almost gone. The obligation of a director is to make sure that you're fully aware of the situation of the company on a not necessarily daily basis, depending on whether you're an executive or non-executive director, but on a frequent basis that you sort of touch in back in with where the, how the company's doing, where the company's at. And ignorance or naivety is just not going to be no. an excuse anymore. Look, I'll give you an example. I mean, we, during COVID, of uh, course, retailers were hit hard back in March 20. And we worked with one particular retailer where the option was to shut the doors um, because, you know, I couldn't see a way through. Or we worked with them to go out and do compromises with their landlords and some of their suppliers, which allow them to continue to trade so that, you know, they could see that there was a way through. That company's doing very well now. And it was right at the beginning, so they didn't know the wage subsidies were going to come out, um, so they had to act quick. And I think the landlords also are better off because they actually still have tenants in their stores. Mm. So, you know, there are these mechanisms out there to help companies. And to go back, you know, if, if it's insolvent, do you shut it down? Depends on why it's insolvent or why it's in the trouble it's in. Mm. 
I had um, a matter come across my desk in December where, as a result of the, the vaccine mandates, this particular company uh, was faced with a overnight reduction in, in workforce. And as a result, he didn't have staff to send to do the work because of the vaccine mandates. And the, the flow-on effect of not having people going out and doing the work meant that he didn't have money that was going to be coming in. And it's sort of a three- or four-month pipeline, he realized that he wasn't going to have the money to be able to meet his debts as they fell due. And that's when he came across our desk and started speaking to us. So I think that's just a, an early example of a, an environmental or an external factor, which has resulted in somebody coming to speak to us at very early on in the piece. Yeah, I think you can't bury head in the sand is, is the answer. I think that um, through what's gone through debut homes and Mainzell and, and others, it's very clear that the courts aren't going to take that for an excuse. Mm. And I think that any director that does that is lining themselves up to attack in terms of reckless trading or insolvent trading. I think that you need to keep a close ear and eye on, your, on the businesses you're involved in. Yeah, um, and I think Mainzell is probably a good one to talk about because in that case, the company had a non-binding letter of comfort from another company within the group for a substantial amount of money and the directors said, well, we've got this letter of comfort, we're, we're fine. And the court said, well, first of all, it's non-binding and if you were going to call it up, how do you know that the other company within the group would be able to meet the obligations under the letter of comfort and the courts were, weren't very impressed with the directors in Mainzell. That's the Court of Appeal. Yeah, and I think, you know, the other thing is the letter was in a foreign jurisdiction, the company, and it's a jurisdiction that is widely known to have exchange controls and capital controls and very difficult to go and collect money from. So, you know, I hate to say it probably wasn't worth a bit of paper it was written on. Yeah, and I think the Court of Appeal got to the same, the same opinion in that one. Mm. So if we're summing up, you know, if directors want to keep themselves safe and make sure that they're not breaching their duties, that... First of all, you know, they've got to understand the financial position of the company, that, you know, there's just no excuses to not know what's going on. And secondly, if things start to look shaky, just consult your advisors and get a steer on the best way to go. I think so. I mean, I think it gives you a, a more of a defence that you've looked at and taken it seriously and advisors um, can come in and provide you with that guidance, I think. And like I said, the court's a lot more active these days on on looking at this and, and so are liquidators. So... I think directors would be wise to take counsel at the appropriate time. Yeah, and I think from my perspective, whenever you're talking about directors' duties, it can be quite scary to any person that's put their hand up to be a director. And I think it's worthwhile just reiterating that the point of the structure of companies in New Zealand is to give directors the freedom to take business risks for the economic benefit of not only the company but our economy as a whole. But it's just making sure that you're taking those business risks within the framework of full knowledge of the situation in which the company is trading. Mm, yeah, making sure you've got the information before you do anything. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you, Wayne. Thank you, Andrew. And uh, thank you for joining us, everybody. This is Off the Clock. <laughs>